0: Welcome to a special compilation episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. My name is Katie McCauley, and I've spent a 30-year career helping organizations inform, inspire, and motivate their people. Every fortnight, I interview a leading light from the world of leadership, communications, and engagement in a quest to find new, interesting ways to improve the way we communicate at work. Season three of the show kicks off on Wednesday, the 5th of February, 2020, and I'm overly excited by my lineup of guests. You're in for a real treat, listeners. But before the curtain goes up on a new season, let's have a quick recap. I interviewed more than 20 guests last year and had many fascinating and informative conversations. Here are just a few of my favorite moments. Rachel Miller, founder of All Things I See, was my very first interviewee, and I really couldn't have asked for a better guest. Consultant trainer, public speaker, and prolific blogger, Rachel is one of the leading voices in internal comms. She has called this her most revealing interview to date. It took place in her shed quarters, a very impressive office in her back garden. It was actually really hard for me to pick a a best bit from this very open and candid conversation. But here, Rachel talks about current IC trends and opportunities, plus her inside-out approach to communication. We are about to head into a a new year and certainly when this program goes out we'll be starting a new year. In terms of what people are talking about and asking questions about, are there any particular themes or trends we need to be all
1: watching out for in the next sort of year, two years, do you think? So I think voice is increasing in volume, people looking at how do we use voice for internal comms. Daniel Penton is doing a brilliant job in covering that with the work that he's doing and I think there's much more that we could be doing when it comes to voice I think you know my whole house is controlled by voice we control lighting and heating and tvs and everything my children are six and three-year-old twins and they control everything by voice when they go to the workplace they would just expect everything to work like that mm. my daughter asked me recently "Mummy, why do we have light switches Right. Because she couldn't remember the last time she used the light switch, which just made me go, wow. Okay, this is a world that is accelerating and we aren't talking enough about that in internal comms at the moment. It's a little way off, but we can start to experiment. We can start to experiment with voice search, for example. Also repurposing content, something that's really top of mind for me at the moment is how do you get your channels to work super hard for you? And for me, that's about taking a video, stripping out the audio and using it as a podcast, for example. Yes. We're not so good at that in internal comms. We think quite separately about our channels. We've got podcasts for this or a video for this or an intranet for that. And we don't often signpost between them. We don't make them work collectively well together. So when I'm analysing an organization's internal comms, I'm looking for that. How are you making your channels work? For all of the time, money and effort you invest in them, how are they working super hard for you? So key for me at the moment is thinking about repurposing internal content externally, external content internally. It's more, I don't like the phrase holistic, but it's more, you know, more of a, rounded, a rounded approach to content where you're looking at where are the conversations Absolutely. internally and externally. And then how do we make sure that we repurpose our content in a smart way that benefits our employees, that benefits our customers, that enhances our reputation. So that for me is something that's on my mind at the moment and I'm plotting posting blog posts
0: on. Yes, I totally agree with you. I'm fascinated by where voice is going to take us. I don't think it's going to be that long before some employees wake up in the morning and say, Alexa, play me my team brief.
1: I think. I'm glad you didn't say Siri because I've got a home pod behind us and it she just kicks in there.
0: <laughs> when I was practicing my CIPR speech, I had that line and I practiced it in the kitchen. Alexa said, How can I help you every time? <laughs> so, yeah, I know what you mean. I think. Internal comms is being taken out of the workplace in that respect. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got to get with the programme. I also agree with you that we need to think of content much more as assets, and you know when we go out and we find that story we're not finding it in a kind of analog way either it's just pictures or it's just text it's video it's audio it's a picture gallery Mm -hmm. maybe it becomes an animation of some kind maybe it's an infographic that ends up moving i mean there's so many different ways yeah we work hard to get that content and if we invested all that time in it then how do we use it best i think it's really really i think it's not about
1: repeating the same information across multiple channels because then the quality goes down to be having that intention behind each one of what they're there to do, what's the purpose, but just spotting opportunities to see, course, the opportunities to normally reach people who wouldn't have seen a town hall in person, but how can you strip out the audio that they can then have it as an audio file, for example, you know, could that work? Just about thinking differently about your content and not such pigeonholed for each individual channel that you have. So I'm excited to see what happens with that. I'm excited to see what the possibilities could be it's doing what we've always done but doing it smarter
0: yes absolutely I've heard you speak about this inside out approach to communication and you talk about it very eloquently from your own personal perspective that the future and your career has been based on your values and what's important to you and that's the starting point and in many ways an organisation needs to start there what's our purpose what do we believe mm-hmm. in what makes us special and unique yeah. and then from that then you get your narrative and you get the rest of your content does that suggest to you that this line between internal and external is going to continually blur and we're going to be putting a lot more content that originated internally maybe originated for employees but we're going to be sharing that more widely
1: I hope so So you can see next to us, we've got a big artwork, what happens inside is reflected outside that I had created at the start of this year of 2018 to to mark five years of running all things I see. And for me, it's that mindset of what happens internally is reflected externally in terms of our culture. For example, you you see hashtag life at L'Oreal, hashtag life at Diageo. You see it on Twitter and on LinkedIn. People are looking for purpose-driven organisations. I keep seeing it in job adverts. I have job adverts on my website and The way companies are talking about themselves is changing. And we talk about being purpose-driven organisations. This is who we are, what we stand for, and what it's like to work here. For me, what good looks like is if your employees are saying that, that's far more palpable, far more powerful, because that honest integrity around this is who we are and what we do, not what our careers site says, and then you contrast it with Glassdoor, and it's like two different organisations. Whether it's congruence with our culture and the way that we communicate it just seeps out. Who doesn't want to be part of an organisation like that? The role there for internal and external comms is to gather those stories and draw together that melting pot of who we are, what we do, why we're here. Yes, it's about being purpose-driven and having the right people in the right roles and you know, doing the right jobs. But more than that, is, this is the difference that we're making in the world. When your employees are saying that, it's far more powerful than a billboard, You know, a company saying... We want to queue more patients, sell more widgets, transport more people. If you get your employees to say that, but genuinely saying it, not just having technology where you have pre-written tweets that everybody writes, that's not it. I see that so much. And you just think you're nearly there, but you're not. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's prescriptive. And the fact it's this is what we think you should say about our organisation, that very intentional, very manipulative almost mindset of this is what good looks like, rather than asking employees, what does it mean to you to be here? Absolutely. Then you get that richness and that variety and that honesty around this is what it means for me to work in this organisation. I'd far rather work with those sorts of people. I'd far rather, you know, if I was an employee looking to go somewhere, I'd much rather apply to a company where I can see genuinely. But also, warts and all. It's not all shiny and perfect and brilliant. When you have that language that says, actually, this didn't work so well, so we're doing this instead. Or we made a mistake here. Hold our hands up. Like we made a mistake. So, this is how our people are fixing it. You know, just that honest conversation, that's just so powerful. Who doesn't want to work for an organisation like that? I certainly would.
0: I think you're right, but I think it requires quite a lot of bravery on behalf of the organisation to reflect the genuine concerns, language, tone of voice Mm. on the front line of our organisations. I just had that conversation at a head office and inside a very large organisation yesterday and a very bright client said, and we must allow the irreverence of the employees to shine through so you're absolutely right when they're joking when it's gone wrong when they've got a complaint mm. because I think employees because they see under the hood of our organizations every day they can spot propaganda and manipulation a mile away Gosh, yeah. Yeah. you can market to consumers in a way you just can't market to employees they know exactly what's going on yeah so I think you're absolutely right but you need to be brave enough to allow people to speak their minds to a degree, don't you?
1: Ultimately, if you don't do it, they're doing it anyway. They'll be putting it on their own personal Facebook or Twitter or Glassdoor or... I think that's one of the biggest shifts that we've had in organisational communication is you can't control what people say, but you can control how you react and how you respond. And I think when you're thinking about giving permission to employees to talk about the organisation... It's been a bit of a minefield. You know, one of the very first things I did the first year of my business was writing so many social media policies and lots of them wanted to do a thou shalt not, you know, that you must say that your views are your own on Twitter and you must say, which holds no water. You know, it was very prescriptive. Whereas for me, I like to think of about social media particularly, uh, you give flexibility within boundaries. So here are the boundaries, but be yourself. Within those boundaries. Yeah, so you're trusting. My husband is an IT consultant and I borrow a quote from him constantly so it's John's quote you need to trust people to do the right thing then assume they'll do the wrong thing yes and you think about that from an organisational communication context and from being you know now we talk about having ambassadors and advocates and internal influencers who are trying to influence people externally all of that whole mindset it's about trust
0: yes absolutely
1: trusting your people to say what's what's going on but having that bravery and being bold in your organisation to listen take it seriously and act on it don't just say well, it's all right, it's on Twitter and they've got 100 followers, so it's fine. Yes. So, <laughs> no. Bring it in, you know, bring the conversations in and talk about it, examine it internally and why you're disappointed with it or what it's brought up. It requires more work, but all that graft is worth doing because you're having that honest conversation inside your organisation to then reflect outside the reality of what it's like to work for you, warts and all.
0: There are 4,500 people working in the UK Government Communications Service across hundreds of different organisations. For those of them working in internal comms, Russell Grossman is their head of profession, responsible for strategic recruitment and career progression. I was keen to hear how far Russell thinks IC has progressed as a profession during his 30-year career. You said that initially the support of this profession was set up because IC was a little bit of the poor relation. Do you see that changing?
2: It's changed.
0: It's changed. It's changed,
2: yeah. changed. I wouldn't say that every single organisation across government, that problem's gone away, but certainly in the main departments, internal communications is regarded as an equal. And I think that has partly been the way in which we have demonstrated in the profession, exactly as we've been talking, that we are as passionate and as professional about all the tools that you need in communication as anybody else, actually. And you can go onto the GCS website and you'll see our various guides, and those are all there for everyone to see. It's also the case, I think, that across the industry that's the, the communications industry, I think internal communications has moved from a dark corner where it produced posters and stuff like that to a separate corner but one in the boardroom where it is correctly advising leaders on the next step that they need and mm. where leaders are themselves seeking out counsel about how they need to interact with colleagues who work in an organisation. I think those two forces, if you like, have conspired, certainly in my experience, to create internal communications as an equal partner.
0: I still meet people who lament the fact that they are considered a little bit the post men and women of their organisation, maybe to where they're still sorting and delivering messages. What's your advice to someone that Wishes to be more of a valued partner and consultant to their business to drive performance as opposed to just sorting and delivering the messages.
2: I would say to those people look at yourself Mm -hmm. and you ask yourself why you are not valued. And in some cases, this is down to the people themselves and it's certainly true that there are some practitioners in internal communications who actually are very happy to be the post men and women and are not of the sort that would wish to be counselling senior leaders Mm. or would wish to be pushing themselves outside a comfort zone Mm. and I see too many people like that to be honest so I would say first look at yourself and examine yourself and instead of moaning consider how you are going to build your own capability up how are you building your networks are you as interested in the external environment of this organization as you are in the internal environment do you know what your middle managers are worried about today are you able to have the capability to push back to let's say for example an HR manager who says could you produce this poster and ask why do you want to produce that poster what is it that you're trying to achieve and this need for resilience I see less I suppose in internal comms people who sit there and say oh I feel on the poor relation than I do in people who might be working in media relations for whom it's pretty obvious that you push back to a journalist, that you say to, it doesn't have to be a senior manager, it could be anyone that's about to go for an interview, I'm sorry you can't say that because.
0: Yes, absolutely. It's estimated that 50% of UK practitioners have been through the original Melchrom Black Belt Training Programme. The duo that designed and delivered the programme, Liam Fitzpatrick and Sue Dewhurst, came into the studio to talk about their new book, Successful Employee Communications, a practitioner's guide to tools, models, and best practice for internal communication.
3: I think it's never been more important than now
0: yeah, yeah. i mean the brilliant bill quirk once said and i
4: always remembered it he said people are suffering from information overload and meaning underload ah yeah. bill said a lot of the classic things that are still so valid today and i one think one day
0: i'll get him on the podcast
4: really <laughs>
0: <laughs> absolutely yeah i mean he wrote one of the first books didn't he i think was it making connections that people still talk about well,
3: the first book i bought when i started working in telecoms was his communicating corporate change which had the escalator in it and i actually had to go and track an old copy down the other week because my one seemed to have
0: disappeared somewhere along the way we'll put all these books in the show notes because i think they'll be useful for people who might not have gone back through the earlier textbooks because they are still relevant a lot of them i
3: think a lot of stuff that bill said was because he said them for the first time i think a lot of people don't realize the debt that we have to people like him and roger dupree Mm. who frame things clearly and actually have you know driven the profession forward but his point about the one thing we're short of is meaning not information which is absolutely super true yeah
0: I was struck by something you said, Sue, about meaning being created in the dialogue that you have to have with people. For meaning to take place, it's not just broadcasting messages at them, but it's then how they're interpreting that and having conversation around it, which I think is one of the shifts that I'm very keen to see. It's not happening as necessarily as much as it should be, is it? That we're actually entering into a meaningful dialogue with people that work for us. I
4: I think we can be obsessed with, for example, cascading a consistent message. And a lot of our language around communication is cascade. You know, get the message out. It's old-style information transmission. As much as we talk about dialogue, we use the language of information transmission.
3: Yeah. And I suspect we now live in a world where people don't want to be shouted at anymore. You know, they're not interested in it and they just switch off as soon as you start doing it. So if you want people to... Get with the program and folks and I things, just stop shouting at them.
0: Mm. <laughs> it's amazing we live in a world, I think social media must have driven this a lot, that people want to take part, don't they? Mm. They don't just want to passively read something. They think, oh, okay, I've got a comment on that, I've got a thought on that, I don't agree with it. I'm not going to tell the world I don't agree with it. And then a dialogue starts off almost sort of organically, I guess.
3: And you're absolutely right, and even if they don't actually express a point of view they'd like to believe that if they had one they'd be listened to yes Uh, a lot of the old ways of communicating basically have been on the premise that we'll have questions but the questions are only to help you understand they're not to actually help us debate or formulate policy or whatever and that's Mm. um
5: Mm.
3: yeah i think people in the workplace now actually kind of expect to be part of the conversation and part of the plan
0: yes absolutely absolutely it's
4: even to be honest it's changed the way that i've think about comms planning even recently really yeah because I've always said well you know you have the conversation with the business to understand the issue and you set your objectives and then you know you think about how you're going to get it across to your audience whereas I've now changed the order and said well you know first stage is you explore the issue you explore it from the business perspective and you explore it from the other perspective because who says the business knows right yeah you know it's just one perspective I think it's taken me a while to to learn that,
0: actually. Yes. In fact, I just had a conversation, exactly that, with a multinational company conference call very early this morning when they were saying, we've got a set of values, we've got a purpose, we've got a set of behaviours, and how do we get that across to the organisation? I was thinking, okay... So what might any of those mean to your audience before we start planning how to do it exactly? And let's find out what's in their minds and how that might be meaningful to them and what they're looking for, I guess, from all those things.
4: Yeah, and the idea of branding anybody that might speak up against change of being resistant. You know, what if the opinion they've got is actually helpful? What if the organisation is about to do something damaging? And that is not a lone voice being difficult. It's somebody that if you listened they could help you stop tripping up, you know, because they're closer to the customer than the person planning that change.
0: Mike Klein is a writer and internal communicator based in the Netherlands with corporate comms experience in Belgium, Denmark, Germany, Great Britain and the US. Mike is not someone who holds safe, conventional views. At one point in my interview with him, he explains why IC is actually like Kentucky Fried Chicken. And believe me, it's a pretty convincing argument. But in this clip, Mike is outlining a really inspiring, bold ambition for us IC professionals. I mean, I think your your thesis basically is that One of the jobs we have to do as internal communicators at the moment is change the perception. I I read a line of yours where you said, we don't edit copy. We should be seen as editing organizations. It's a fundamentally more strategic and business-driven role,
5: isn't it? Yeah, it's also a far more ambitious role. And it requires, and this is not just a changing the terms thing, this is an internal comms thing. It requires the communications professional to see beyond their laptop and see beyond the submission of their work and the ticking of the box as the outcome of what they're doing. I mean, if you are ghostwriting words for a leader, what that leader is going to say and turn into reality, the reality in turn changes the way the organization operates. You're not editing this copy. You are editing the organization. Absolutely. And leaders increasingly expect us not to produce what we think they'll approve. They're expecting us to say, what would we do if we were in their position?
0: Yes, it does demand a different kind of relationship with senior stakeholders, doesn't it? One that's more based on you know challenge potentially asking the slightly awkward question it's much less of a kind of command control
5: relationship where you're given instructions yes. and off you go too many communicators are overly deferential to leadership mm. Mm. and it's it's funny that i'm kind of getting into this now because you know i'm 54 i went to london business school One of my classmates, Tarek Robiati, is the CFO of Hewlett Packard Enterprise. So it's like my peers and friends are people operating at this level now. Yes. And so that's given me both more empathy for where they're at, but also more inspiration to say, Mike, you've got to step up.
0: I wonder how communicators can develop that confidence to challenge? Because it must be very difficult early in your career when you just want your leader to pat you on the back and say you've done a good job. It must be quite difficult. I mean, did you learn that over time? Is that just something that comes with experience?
5: It it hasn't been an unvarnished or consistent success. (laughs) You know, I've managed to piss off my share of leaders just as I've managed to engage my share of leaders. You know, sometimes you do it out of inspiration. Right. Sometimes you do it out of desperation. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes when you do it out of desperation, it actually works and it actually catalyzes and upgrades whatever relationship you're in. Yes. A lot of it depends on really looking at what is it that the leader would do if their constraints were removed. When you're editing the organization, part of it is you got to let the leader edit you,
0: right? Okay.
5: Um, rather than self censoring.
0: Yes. Yes.
5: And you know, it's it's. I'm not saying try to do this all the time and be completely fearless, no matter what. Seek opportunities built, you know, put some runs on the board. When you've put some runs on the board, you've built some trust, you've built some credibility. They'll ask you for more ambitious stuff. But one thing that I really noticed recently in the last year was I was doing the C-suite research as part of the research I was doing for Happio. Yes. uh, Which is a G-suite digital workspace vendor looking at the present and future of internal comms. And... The C-suite folks were saying, we want you to do this. Mm, mm. We want you to cut the noise. We want you to be strategic. We want you to take initiative. And if you're not up for it, mm. then we're going to have to come up with alternatives. And The biggest fear that I have for internal comms is that internal communications practitioners are right now so deeply in the weeds, so deeply trying to survive their next encounter hmm. with senior management that they're showing no leadership to senior management when senior management actually have an appetite for it. Yes. On the one hand. And then on the other hand, you have external communications that's saying, oh, internal and external, there's no real difference, you know let's repurpose as much of our communication as possible and have one integrated thing and that's that's a, the, the internal external c- convergence is a whole one hour conversation <laughs> with me but the main thing is that we have a window where on the one hand senior management is showing more appetite for what we can do but that we're under increasing competitive resource and confidence pressures to be able to deliver it before that window shuts.
0: For the last episode of season two, I traveled to Bath in the UK to interview two speakers at the Institute of Internal Communications annual conference, Martin Fitzpatrick and Matt Batten. Both are in-house practitioners working at the sharp end of internal comms. Here, Martin talks about designing channels and content for a truly diverse retail workforce. Listen out for his answer to whether there's a magic wand to making Yama a truly effective channel across your organisation.
6: Because actually what's important is, is
0: uh, having a
6: workforce that matches the demographics of the communities in which you work. So within the wider UK, not everybody is under 25, not everybody's over 50, not everybody is male, nor female, nor are they black, white, Asian, or any other ethnic mm-hmm. background. You know, we are a broad, diverse, Rich country. And so why wouldn't we want our employee base to be the same? You know, that richness that you get from true diversity brings better performance. The Macclesfield store was an extreme kind of experiment to see what you could do. But what that led to was decades of heritage within BQ, of being inclusive, of creating an environment where whether you're older or younger, whether you're a working parent, whether you're coming back to work, whether you have mobility challenges or any other challenge, we can create an environment. Where you can be successful with us. In turn, that's made us the most successful home improvement retailer in the
0: UK. Fantastic. Have you had to adapt your internal communications approach for older workers as you've got more used to their mindset, et cetera, their needs, their preferences? Uh, Yes and no. Yes and no. So um, that's
6: a great answer, Uh, a very political answer. Know in the fact that what matters to your people, if you're a values-driven organisation and it's true to you, it will matter to everybody, whether they've been in the business for five minutes or 50 years, whether they are 50 or 25, what matters will matter to everyone. What we have had to think more closely about is the accessibility of our communications. Right. And so, you know, that's things like, could you access our content on a screen reader if you had you know, vision impairment? Does it work? Does it work well? Is it accessible? We subtitle all of our videos. We are very careful about the language that we use, so it's inclusive. So a good example is when we start to talk recently about the apprenticeships levy which is something that's big on most big businesses our agenda at the minute mm. we were very careful that language didn't make it seem like this was a thing for young workers apprentices are not designed for people who are 21 to 25 although that seems to be how most businesses pitch them we have 45 of our people who are over 50 doing you know one to two year apprenticeships right now to further progress their career and build their skill set the only way we can drive that is if we're very careful about the language you use and we're inclusive and we're trying to avoid as much as possible some of that unconscious bias around
0: the subjects so you would dispel some of the myths that we have about older workers that they're very late adopters of technology Mm. that they're just in it for the pin money that they're not interested in learning new skills that's not your experience not at all and in real life you know
6: we've got lots of examples where that is just fundamentally not true Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff you know there's things like I've heard businesses say oh well we try to introduce Yama but our workforce is older like I've spoken to colleagues at conferences so we'd probably do something like Yammer, but we've got an older workforce and they're quite dispersed they probably wouldn't use social My mum uses social media, my gran uses social media. Mm -hmm. Now, my phone will ping at like midnight, and my mum will send me some really weird meme that I'm not sure she actually really understands the meaning of. (laughs) (laughs) But, But nonetheless, you know, she uses it regularly. It's a communication method I use to stay in touch with family members, you know, all over the country. And so, why we have this perception that when people move from their home life, to the workplace, the reason they're not using our channels is because they don't get them. They're not using our channels for a plethora of reasons. It's not because they don't understand them. And yes, they're probably not, you know, all the workers are probably not using, you know, Instagram. They're probably not out there on Snapchat. But they definitely use things like Facebook, Twitter increasingly. Digital more broadly as a topic, I think there's a bit of a misnomer that older people can't understand digital. They don't get it and it will be really hard for them. So we should either ignore them, or B, mop them up at the end. You know, they they (laughs) seem to be the two approaches. But, I mean, if you think about it logically, what nonsense. Most of these workers went through the most significant shift uh, since the Industrial Revolution, the introduction of IT into the workplace from paper-based, to electronic, but they lived that entire journey they have done more digital change in their careers than most of us will probably ever do again the only more disruptive technology will probably be ai into the workplace and so to say that they don't get digital is nonsense they do they get it they've lived it they've been through it now some of that might have been painful you might have to do some work to say this could be better or easier but they do get it more broadly most organizations seem to want to launch digital advocacy programs which I totally support advocacy programs are a great way to mobilize a workforce but if your entire approach to digital is let's get a load of graduates and get them to spread the word about how great (laughs) digital is you know your older employees are probably less likely to engage in that even though they're more than capable of doing so so I think there's a piece of work to be done as our workforce generally ages over the next 10 years thinking more closely about when we're building advocacy programs. How do we get a more representative sample of our employee base to form that advocacy program, including older workers?
0: You also suggest in your presentation, I think, that older workers are contributing quite a lot to your user-generated content mm, through do, their yes. own kind of stories and skills and expertise, etc. That sounded yeah. really interesting. Yeah, it's amazing, actually. So, um, you know, we
6: launched 2,000 products last year in b and 2,000 new products. Like, it's wow. a massive amount. We're at the tail end of a big transformation journey. And, you know, the cons team can't support individual pieces of video bite-sized learning for two thousand products. It's a man we won't do anything else with our time. We have a business to look after. Yet our people can. There's twenty-three thousand of them. Twenty-three thousand people Looking at, well, how could we share some information out oh, 2,000 products? That's manageable. For the eight people in the commerce team, unmanageable. And so our Yammer community is very vibrant in BQ, um, very much used by our frontline teams quite regularly as a way to share information and get the job done, seek help from each other. And just quite organically, we started to find, as new products were introduced, people within the stores just taking selfie videos on their phone saying, hey, here's a new range. Because we don't roll them out to all stores all at once, we'll take a phase approach to roll sets of products through the estate. Stores will be like, oh my God, we got this product first for a change. So I'm going to do this piece of video that says, here's this new product. Here's what it looks like. Look how it looks on the shelves. Customers are loving it. Here's how you use it, which is awesome. What was really interesting is it seemed to be our older colleagues that were most willing to do this. It wasn't full of you know, 25-year-olds, 23-year-olds or people at university doing this user-generated selfie video it was all the workers who'd been with us for quite some time, sometimes supervisors on departments, sometimes customer advisors who were saying, ah, we used to have this product that I remember when this product launched and now we've got this other product and it's so much better and it does this and it costs that and, you know, that saves us tens of thousands of pounds in production costs. Our L&D team couldn't support that. That's amazing. Do they post those videos then on their own personal social media accounts or do they put it on the predominantly on, on it goes on well? to yammer yeah uh, they generally don't post it on their own social media accounts um, which is fine and actually we'd rather they post it on yammer because what that allows us as a comms team to do is move from the generators of content scripting videos getting agencies in setting up you know and suddenly we can become the curators of stories we can find this content and we can share it with senior leaders I oh, might want to have a comment on this or look at this isn't that cool and that starts to drive pickup of the video and the more the video gets picked up the more people start to share it the more people start to share it the more other people go i could do something like that in my store you know and it started in a small section of storm before we knew it it was happening in our outdoor section it was having people showing how to use a new range of barbecues that the people were talking about you know and it's a great one paint lids are hard to get off and if you're female working on our paint desk they quite often you break your nails trying to open a paint lid one of the stores invented a little tool like oh if you go to the guys in wood they can make this for you look like, just pops the lid off great here's how you make it we would never have created that content in the com because we wouldn't have known that was an issue. But there was loads of examples like that and it's not all by younger workers.
0: I'm just intrigued by this because I have a lot of colleagues and clients, friends who really struggle to get the Yama channel off the ground. Mm. So, is there a magic wand to Yammer, or is it just? A the, 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 <laughs> <a dream? laughs> if
6: there was, I'd be very well off now. Running an angel somewhere installing Yammer all over the country, probably working for Microsoft. No, I think it very much depends on your organisation, right? So, I've introduced Yammer, or I've been part of teams that have introduced Yammer at two organisations now: once a Vodafone, and once that B&Q. But there are some things you can do to give yourself a better chance. I think so. Usually. Yammer comes as part of an Office 365 yes. implementation. I think this is where it falls down fundamentally. Usually, Yammer is run by an IT team. And at yeah. some point in time, they come and tell the comms team, we're turning on Yammer next week. You might want to use it. Thanks. And then Yammer appears. And then hopefully, the comms team from Scramble in the last week tell everybody Yammer's coming. People go, "Ooh, don't know what that is. Sounds exciting. Let me check it. And they open up Yammer and it's nothing. It's maybe one channel, like all company, nothing and then somebody types hello and somebody else goes whoa hello and before you know it you've got three thousand comments of people just saying hello and then it goes it's very quiet comments. yeah and then six weeks later yammer is dead you know it's the business equivalent of sitting down in front of a blank sheet of paper or you know if you imagine if you took a whole bunch of people out of your office you brought a ball you walked into an empty field and went there you go play the game and just walked off yeah, they spend the first hour just looking at the ball, going, does anyone know what game we're supposed to be playing? <laughs> and then when they figure out the game, how do we score? What's the pitch look? You know, all of that type of stuff. You can help your organization go into Yammer first, build your advocacy groups, decide with your leadership teams, what do we actually want this platform to do? Is it just social for fun? Is it to drive business? Is it aimed at frontline staff ahead of? You know, there's all these discussions have. Once you've got that, you can start to mark out the field. So one of the things we did was we created the types of groups we thought people would find most useful before we ever opened it up so there's not all being. Q. there's one for the outdoor teams one for the decor teams you know we created some of these then we brought the digital agency in to start posting some content we seeded some example content into those and then we phased the rollout so we didn't just open it to everyone blank sheet of paper so when people started to come on there was already content they could see what types of stuff you might use Yammer for they could see some interesting stuff on there we started to move business processes across so faceless mailboxes like communications at BQ, nope Yammer community if you need us talk to us on there you need support about a particular product talk to the owner on Yammer suddenly it becomes part of your business process then it becomes a place where people go to do work then it becomes a place where people go to get help then you've got a conversation and before you know it you've got vibrant Yammer community but if your approach is like the IT teams deal with it you won't have the Yammer community for very long.
0: For Hilary Scarlett, neuroscience provides an evidence-based approach to internal communication and managing change. I found my interview with her really fascinating. In this extract, we talk about the value of applying a scientific approach to communication. We can be accused occasionally of being fluffy, and I think you're right, and it's lots of reasons for that, and it's often not warranted. But I think reading your book, there were so many moments where I went, aha, that's why that happens. You know it happens, but now we know why. It's the way people's brains are responding to the messages that they're receiving and how they're feeling incredible incredible
7: yeah and i think and you're absolutely right i think that's really useful because i think for a lot of it it gives that kind of explanation to why that thing is going why we've responded in a certain way and i know leaders have certainly said to me when i've run sessions with them now that i know why i'm much more likely to stick to doing whatever it is i need to do because i know if i do x or Y, or I i don't listen to people or i don't talk to people you know i know what that's going to do to their brain in terms of performance so i think it helps the yeah the, the, the good behaviours to stick in that way. And I think the other part about it, as you say, I think I know when I was doing my original neuroscience studies, it is that sense of, oh, I felt that way. Oh, that's happened to me. And I think there's something really reassuring about it It's not just me. That's how our brains are set up. They are brilliant things, but they respond in certain ways to certain things. They have certain limitations. And I just think it's incredibly useful to have that knowledge and work with that knowledge.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
7: Rather than in ignorance of it, yeah.
0: So let's share some of that knowledge with the with listeners now. So one of the things very early on in your book, you say, is that our brains are hopeless prediction machines. That phrase really sort of resonated with me. But I wonder if you can explain what you mean by that and how this might influence the way we respond as individuals to change. Yeah. I think one thing that's very, really
7: useful, again, I found very really useful, that this, this idea that In a way, our brains have not changed that much since we were out on the savannah. And although we might be working in a very sophisticated workspace, actually our brains, it's almost as if if they think they are still out in the savannah. And I think that's a really useful thought to keep in our heads. So out on the savannah, it would be incredibly helpful for our brains to be able to predict what might be coming up. So if there's a rustle in the undergrowth, and our brains can predict that might be a snake, our brains are in a better place to protect us. And it's all about survival. That's the key drive for our brains. So our brains have, have evolved to be able to to want to predict what's coming up to better protect us. And the same is true now, Mm -hmm. that our brains want to predict, they want to know what's coming up subconsciously, always trying to make sense of things, make meaning. And I think, again, it's a really useful thing to be aware of in the organisation, not least when we're going through change, because what does change mean for most people? I don't know what's coming up, I can't predict. Our brains, on the whole, do not like that. They kind of crave certainty, Mm -hmm. because they feel if they've got that, they can protect us. So I think, again, it's one of those areas where if we know that, and if people are finding change hard, I think we have to be empathetic because our brains don't like uncertainty. Mm. They want to be able to predict. They want to make meaning.
0: Mm, mm. And we're driven to make that meaning. But you're also saying in the book, actually, we are, it is better to tell us a sort of an uncomfortable truth very early on, than put us in limbo and have us waiting to find out what might be happening. So actually... Give bad news up front, and that's much that's much a, be- a better thing to do. Then people can start to plan, can, you can, can deal, deal. With it. Yeah, there's there's lots of research from the world of neuroscience and psychology
7: about um, yeah, it, it's the not knowing, it's being in limbo that, that, that's that's so difficult. And one of the extreme examples of that um, is um, children who've got a parent who's got Huntington's disease, which is a really nasty neurological disease. Um, if you get it, um, your life will be shortened, um, and when you're in your 30s and should be in your prime physically. Men- you'll be declining. Nothing stops it at the moment. Nothing alleviates it. So if, and if you've got a parent with Huntington's disease, you've got a 50% chance you've got the gene. And research was done amongst children. They were probably about 18, 19, 20, that kind of age group. And those children who took the test and proved positive, they will develop Huntington's disease, after the initial shock were happier than the children who chose not not to take the test. And the thinking being that even when you've got news as devastating as that, once you've got that news, you can kind of take back control. You can begin to plan. Mm. Okay, I've got 10 good years left in my life. What will I do with that? What's on my bucket list, Mm. so to speak? Whereas the children who choose not to take the test... I don't know. I might have 10 good years. I might have 60 good years. I don't know. So that's an extreme example. But um, uh, there are lots of others about once we've got that knowledge, we can kind of get on and make the plan. And in a sense, the bankers I referred to it earlier in, in, in the bad bank, who all knew they were going to be out of a job, they performed incredibly well. And they said, Because we know, we know we're going to be out of a job. We know we need to get on and think about our CVs and think about what skills we have and and where we go from. We know we can Mm. now get on and make a plan, as opposed to perhaps the people back in the main bank who think they've got a job, but banking was pretty precarious right then. Mm. So I think there are lots of examples that once we've got that bad news on the whole, after the initial shock... we we can kind take back control and plan.
0: You you say employees are more supportive of change when they're allowed to come to their own conclusions in their own time. So people need to have their own moments of insight. Mm. And I thought, wow, how interesting is that? Because how many times have I sat in a room, I've either been the leader or I've been with a leader. And you said, right now I've told them why aren't they getting with the programme? Yes. <laughs> They're not getting in the programme because they need to assimilate that yes. assimilate that information. Yeah,
7: no, absolutely. And I think, as you're right, so many change programmes, I've seen it, it, at least we'll go into darkened rooms with strategy consultants, emerge with a plan that might be brilliant, but actually they go into broadcast mode. And as you say, wonder why employees sit and go, oh don't want to do it, dig dig my heels in. And yet all the research from neuroscience shows how incredibly powerful it is to give people a chance to reach their own insights, to reach their own conclusions. Partly because choice is hugely important to the human brain. And if I feel I've kind of chosen it, so to speak, I'm like to be much more committed to it than if I've been told by a leader, this is the right course of action this is good for stakeholders, this is what you're going to do. And I think it's part of the reason also why things like coaching are coming much more to the fore in many organizations, because coaching, again, is all about enabling people to reach their own insights, set their own goals, reach their own conclusions. And that makes a big difference to our brains, to the extent that we actually process goals that we have chosen, we process in a different part of the brain from goals that we have been given wow. by other people. So they're, that different to us. It kind of, it's my goal. It's mine. I've chosen it. I'll do it. I'm committed to it. So it feels very different to the brain as opposed to something I am told to go away and do.
0: But that's mass- that has massive implications for even performance reviews. Yes. Because enabling people to say, no, I'm going to ask you what objectives you want to set for yourself yes well they'll be more powerful
8: yeah yes.
7: absolutely and and i know performance management is a, is a thorny area but absolutely i think the more again the more control you can give to employees or perhaps about where they have the appraisal, when they have it, again giving them a bit of a control. But absolutely, if you can get employees who seek feedback when they're ready for it, you know, when, that they can ask the questions, they can set their own goals, it makes a big a big difference to them. If I feel I set that goal, it's mine, I'm going to go for it, as opposed to say it's something I've just been told to do, mm. um, which, Yeah which I'm not so keen on. Yeah.
0: You make a point, and, I, and I, I think we have to bring it out because I've seen it happen so many times and I'm sure listeners will be nodding along. Before the big announcement, employees see leaders in darkened rooms. Maybe they go on off-site away days, but they're locked in a room. They might make an announcement and then they go away again to have more strategic yeah. meetings in more kind of um, behind closed doors. Yeah. And your book makes it clear that that is not good for the employees to see leaders disappearing before or after an event. Can you sort of dig into that a little bit and explain why?
7: Yes, and, and, and I think and, and I've absolutely seen that happen. And I think I'm um, partly talking to leaders after that. They'll say, I think for them, again, it's the fear of not having the answer that there is uncertainty now in the organisation. So partly it's they're busy. Partly it's that fear of I haven't got the answer for them, so I'd rather not 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 be questioned on it on it right now. Um, but from an employee's point of view, this is the very point at which you want to see your leaders um, for all sorts of reasons Partly, again, I think as we all know, if, if we haven't got answers, if there is uncertainty in the organisation, um, we will gossip and speculate about what, what, what all this means. And, um, and again, that's again, the, the brain's kind of craving for certainty prediction. We'll create our own. If the organisation yes. doesn't give us the information, we'll create our own. On the whole, because our brains are more interested in, in threats in many ways, because they're more important in terms of survival, our speculation and gossip tends to be negative.
5: It's never about
7: how wonderful it's all going to be around It's also about, oh, what does this mean in terms of jobs going or whatever. So we tend to speculate negatively. Also, um, I think one of the areas that comes out really strongly from the world of neuroscience is that we are deeply, deeply social creatures. And our need for social connection and belonging, I think, are stronger than probably many of us have have realised. So that's the very point at which you you feel you want to be connected to other people. You want to see that leader. And... um, I think it's really important. Even if you can't give people certainty right now, you can at least give that sense of "I'm still on your side, I'm still your leader, I'm still your manager, you still belong to the team," Mm. and that becomes really important. Again, example going back to the banking crisis. Again, example of of, uh, two banks I knew of, and their chief execs responded in very different ways. That one, again, there was so much uncertainty and turmoil during that banking crisis, but one chief exec said, "Well, I'll just." Get out there and have town hall meetings or meetings, and kind of talk to the to the employees, to people about what we think might happen, what we can do. By contrast, in another bank, um, the chief executive just kind of disappeared and didn't want to say anything because he feared that whatever he said would get into the media. Things were changing so quickly. What he said might be proved wrong the very next day or next Mm. week. So he preferred just to say nothing. And talking to the two communication teams, what a difference it made. That chief exec that was getting out there in amongst the people, Mm. kind of saying, I don't know either, but let's talk about what we can do or what we do know or don't know. People really responded much better to that than to the chief exec that just kind of just disappeared. And, And people felt... Not only in a huge amount of turmoil, but also kind of abandoned by their leader at that point.
0: Yes, yes. I mean, your your book has a whole section on the communicate now or later dilemma. Yeah, and
7: it? it is a dilemma, and it and, and I and there is no perfect answer to that because if you go early, you might be wrong. You might need to retract, and I, and that's not perfect. So there is no perfect solution, unfortunately. But on the whole, from a neuroscience point of view, yeah, the tendency would communicate earlier because if you don't. People speculate, people gossip, and they will waste a huge amount of energy doing that actually. Mm, so mm. it's actually not good for performance either.
0: I really love it when I get a genuine aha moment during an interview. You'll hear one of those light bulb moments during this exchange with Dr. Kevin Ruck, one of the few people in the world to hold a PhD in internal communication and employee engagement. In this clip, we get into the role of senior, middle and line managers in the communication process. I just want to pick up on one thing you said there, because you made the point that actually senior leader communication has a big impact on making me feel a certain way. That seems to slightly contradict a book that came out 30 years ago by Larkin and Larkin that said, forget about everything. The only thing that really matters is line manager communication. Now, I've always wondered about that book, that it might have been right back then. But now we live in a world where the hierarchy, not just in organisations, but in society at large, has flattened. There is less deference and we speak up, we want to speak up and we want to co-create the solution and share and we want to voice, not just in terms of where we work, but, you know, in society at large. So does that partly explain why people want this access and they want to feel listened to by their leaders, do you think?
8: I remember that book, (laughs) The Larkin and Larkin book and, you know, I remember it spawned a whole cascade briefing process and I was guilty, hands up, you know, I produced many Cascade team briefings You know, in my time at BT. But I think the book and the Cascade team briefing approach is unfortunately based on a bit of a flawed assumption. Basically, you actually need to ask employees what they want from their line managers and what they want from their senior managers in terms of communication, which is what I did. Right. And you actually then find that it's very different to what Larkin and Larkin found back in, I think it was the 1990s. So I'm not sure whether it's because organisations have changed. I think it could be, you know, for sure. But I think it might always have been the case, actually. Right. Um, So it's very simple, really. If you ask employees, they just say, when my line manager does a team briefing, I want my line manager to talk primarily about what's going on in my team that week, that month, and team-related information. That's what they want their line manager to do. And I think that that makes sense. You know, if I say to them, well, what happens when a line manager presents a cascade team briefing with this corporate stuff about new vision or values or whatever has happened? And they well, basically well, I know my line manager knows as little as <laughs> I do you it know, about, about what they're being asked to present, you know, and, and it puts line manager in a really invidious position. And no wonder they don't deliver it very well because they're not comfortable or knowledgeable about what they're being asked to present. I've sourced research recently where internal communication people I think line managers are the biggest problem or challenge in successful internal communication practice. And I don't know why they say that, but I think it could be because there's this impression that line managers are not very good communicators, whatever we might mean by good communicator. I think they may think that they're not very good at standing up and doing PowerPoint presentations in a very persuasive way. But if you ask employees, they don't want their line manager to stand up and do a persuasive presentation with PowerPoint in their team meetings. Wow. Yeah, so why is that? Why would we ask them to do uh, wh- that? Of course. It does really make you think this. <laughs> it does really make you think.
0: That really does. And also, okay, so there's a little bit of a light bulb moment in my head just gone off. So are we actually asking line managers sometimes, are we abdicating responsibility? Are middle managers and senior managers abdicating responsibility and saying, no, I'm gonna give you the debt, I'm gonna give you the cascade materials off your trot. You really should be able to do the jazz hands on this. And we know that they weren't employed and promoted to be line managers because of the jazz (laughs) hats. They were very good at the task. And so hence they're managing the task. So now we really need to ask middle managers, senior managers, CEOs, senior leadership teams to step a little bit into the limelight. Yeah,
8: Yeah, I think we do. And the evidence goes back to my research findings, which shows that if you increase satisfaction with senior manager communication, it's going to have a stronger impact on engagement than if you increase satisfaction with line manager communication. So employees say that if there's something important going on about the organisation, whether it be an update on progress, whether it be some changes that are foreseen, whatever the bigger sort of corporate story might be that's going on, they want senior managers to talk to them about that, not their line manager, mm-hmm. you know? And it's understandable because they want to be able to look the senior manager in the eye and say, can I trust this person in terms of what they're telling me? And the other myth that's out there is, you know, comes up sometimes is that employees don't really want to know about this big corporate stuff. They just want to come in and do their job nine to five and go home and, and so on and so forth. Well, the employees I interviewed, they may have been an exception, but all of them said they were very interested, really interested. And when I asked them in a survey, 2066 employees surveyed as well, interest in knowing what's going on at the bigger corporate, I wouldn't call it a corporate level, but a bigger planning level about the organisation was really high. It's the highest topic rated in my survey. So this is a myth we need to bust. And if we need to keep employees informed about what's going on at that level, then we need to ensure that senior managers are out and about visible and doing that explanation. And this is another thing that comes, it's not about senior managers being Again, we're expecting a lot from senior managers sometimes. And one director I used to work for says, you know, it's not about being a game show host on speed. Senior managers are not meant to be professional communicators in that kind of way. And this is true. Employees, again, and I'm talking about when I asked them about senior manager communication, they just want them to be themselves. Yeah, Just be human, just tell it as it is, be authentic, be truthful and, you know, explain things. And if you don't know the answer to a question, you know, we, we accept that you can say you don't. No, and all this kind of stuff. But you, you raised a point there about middle managers, which, which, okay. I want, which if we've got time, I think middle managers is the big, untapped area of internal communication. And I do think that we as an internal comms people should bring middle managers into the process much more. What I mean here is that we should coach, guide them, help them. And their middle management role is to support line managers because there are times when line managers are doing team briefings where they could make good, strong connections between teamwork and bigger corporate objectives. And employees do want to know how their work is linked to bigger objectives. And line managers could make that connection, not in a forced way through a cascade team briefing, but through a natural understanding of how work does link. And it's the middle manager who's best placed to help the line manager understand some of the corporate stuff and to be able to make those connections. So I think- perfect sense. Yeah.
0: So that brings this special compilation episode to a close. If you like what you've heard, please click subscribe today. That way you won't miss another episode, like the one coming up with Mr. Icology himself, Chuck Ghost, IABC fellow Priya Bates, and the FBI hostage negotiator, Chris Voss. We are in for a great year. So lovely listeners, until we meet again, Remember, it's what's inside that counts.